0: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. The second part of the latest Andy Anderson interviews. Andy is in Brighton waiting for a posting and he joins his first squadron. Now, everyone, of course, wanted to be a fighter pilot. Everyone that was there wanted to be a hero. (laughs) And uh, the opportunities for being a fighter pilot were pretty remote at that time uh, the Battle of Britain was all over and um, it was mostly beginning to uh, concentrate on bomber command there was a long waiting list for bomber command in the meantime the Brits uh, had found that they, they could use their newfound radar and uh, create night fighters so Everyone wanted to be a night fighter. So we were told that carrots improved your night vision. So we all ate carrots until they were coming out of our ears. (laughs) Now, uh, I had been there for about, I suppose, a month. And uh, was getting a bit fed up with just kicking around Brighton when the chaplain who was a great friend, actually. He'd, he'd come over on the same draft, and uh, you know, he was a particularly nice guy. And uh, he came to see three of us who'd become great friends, and um, he suggested that, that we ought to take an interest in these guys that were coming up from Plymouth and recruiting for their squadron. So we asked them what squadron it was, and he said it was an Australian squadron, entirely Australian squadron, and uh, they flew flying boats. That was new to us. Anyway, um, we decided to put our names forward, and uh, these officers from 10th Squadron came to Brighton to interview people for their squadron to replace people that had been lost. In this case, they they needed three pilots. Three of us were chosen and asked if we'd like to come down to Plymouth and fly flying boats and join 10 Squadron. So uh, we were rather hesitant because, you know, this was new to us. We didn't know much about Coastal Command or anti-U-boat stuff or anything like that. So we said... Uh, you know, what are the conditions like down there? And they said, there's one thing we can assure you. Instead of kicking around Brighton and wait, waiting for a posting into Bomber Command, you will be in operations in two weeks. Now, that was a tremendous draw because this was now getting on for, you know, into 1942, and we were thinking that um, with the Americans in the war, so we said, right, We'd, we'd like to do it. So the three of us, uh, myself, Tommy Hughes, and uh, Peter Braham, were the three guys that went down, and we remained friends for right through our, our operational tour. When we arrived on the squadron, true to their promise, we were in operations in two weeks. Now the reason for that was that we learnt as we flew. It was a long, long tour. Uh, We had to mark up 1,000 hours of operational flying before we could finish a tour, or we had to have 18 months of continual operations before. So it was 18 months or 1,000 hours. So we started off as third pilot on on an aircraft that had a crew of 11. The arrangement was for us to gain experience as a third pilot then eventually we would move to the right hand seat and we'd become a second pilot and then for the last 500 hours of our tour we would be given our own flying boat 11 crew and 16 guns and uh, and after a while we became quite enthralled with our aircraft it was sort of part sailing and part flying which if you're interested at all in sailing it, it was the best of both worlds i mean on the water we were all talking of um bridges instead of flight decks and uh and we had a a toilet on board and that was called the heads there were things like bollards and drogues and uh, and of course we had to become very proficient with tides and winders, winds and how to moor up and all that sort of thing on the water. And then when we became airborne, of course it was all the flying part of it. The range of these aircraft were about uh, 12 hours, and our major job was convoy escorting and uh, uh, hunting for U-boats. And we covered the Bay of Biscay and out into the western approaches. So in 1942, the uh, U-boats were predominant, and uh, Britain was getting into a desperate state. When we took provisions on board to have something to eat during our 12-hour stint, we had to sign for food. I mean, if we took eggs, they'd count the eggs out, one per crew member, and we'd have to sign for them. And that was how desperate the uh, situation was becoming food-wise in the United Kingdom. The convoys were the major part of our uh, operations. And to try and protect them was, in the early days, a very difficult experience because we could only circle them during daylight hours. And the U-boats weren't interested in doing anything in daylight hours they always if they attacked attempted to do so at night i'm galloping ahead a bit but since we're on the subject of convoys the convoys would leave the Ameri- americas and uh, and canada in ships up to 50 probably more spread out over miles of ocean controlled by a number of ships at the hour. that the uh, the Royal Navy could spare to try and protect those convoys. So you can imagine in your mind a huge area of water that these Royal Navy ships had to position themselves in an attempt to prevent a a U-boat getting through. Now, the U-boats only attacked at night, and... uh, they would uh, be daring in that some of them would actually come up within the convoy. The Royal Navy then said to Merchant Navy Captains, if you see a U-boat or you are attacked by a U-boat, the first thing we want you to do is to send up a flare, and that will give us a position as to where you are and where the U-boat may be, and we can perhaps come to your rescue. However, the unfortunate part about that was, as far as the U-boat commanders were concerned, they were absolutely thrilled because immediately they got within the convoy and they were noted uh, a flare would go up and they'd be able to see all the ships around so that they could aim their torpedoes with great accuracy. Casualties on these ships were enormous. If you were a crew member on a ship carrying aviation fuel and you were torpedoed, you were dead. If you were on a ship carrying diesel oil, the same thing would apply. If you were carrying foodstuffs, uh, it it might take a little while for you to sink, but you were going to die because the water temperatures were so low. The only chance you had was to be on a ship that carried wood, And if you were on a ship carrying wood, the possibilities are that that ship might float a while. There were 156,000 merchant navy or merchant navy guys operating on those convoys, of which 33,000 lost their lives. If you can imagine a chaos at night in a convoy that was being attacked by up to 20 U-boats. Then you you had some vague idea of the possibility of, of these guys surviving, which was almost nil. Water temperatures were so low that they, uh, they wouldn't last long in the water. There were certainly no POW camps. Now, if they did survive, they were considered civilians so they really had to make their own way home again they might be dumped somewhere on the south coast of uh, the united kingdom but they had to recover from the trauma themselves and they had to present themselves back at the shipping company's offices to ask for another job their pay would be stopped because, as the shipping company said, well, you're not earning us any money. You haven't got a ship, so why should we pay you? Now, these conditions were absolutely incredibly bad, but they were just civilians, and um, and nobody seemed to take notice of it. Now, the reason that the heroism of these people was never noticed was that they they were civilians, and as that, you know, I, there wasn't one medal of, uh, to my knowledge, of gallantry ever given to any of these men, and because there was this secrecy about the movements of ships across the Atlantic, there was never any advertising done. In fact, it was just the reverse. If you went into a pub on the south coast of England or anywhere else, you would see all these posters stuck there saying, the walls have ears, loose lips sink ships, and the, pu- the public and everyone else was drilled not to ever mention anything about ships. So consequently... The Bomber Command would be praised for their efforts and what they were doing. Fighter Command pilots were considered young gods. Coastal Command guys like Merchant Navy guys were just ignored completely. And you may not believe it, but there are countries that didn't even consider that they were veterans of the Second World War until 50 years after the end of the war. The flying boat was, to my mind, you know, that everyone says, you know, if you stay in an aeroplane, if you strap yourself into an aeroplane for a certain length of time, you get to love it. Well, that was the case with the flying boat. It had a very low top speed. It was loaded with 16 guns. We had uh, four machine guns out the tail turret. We had a nose turret. We had two waist Point five machine guns out of the waist hatches we had two uh, machine guns out of the galley hatches and we had uh, two guns in the nose turret and four guns for the pilot to shoot forward so the Germans didn't like these aeroplanes and invariably they would only tackle them if they had about four fighter aircraft In fact, one of our our guys managed to escape from eight Ju-88s. Uh, The aircraft was pretty full of holes when he got back, so he had to beach it instead of uh, mooring it up. The Germans called us the Flying Porcupine. Probably most dangerous area to fly in was down into the Bay of Biscay because they could fly uh, at right angles to our patrols. Their aerodromes were on the west coast of France, so they could fly out into the Bay of Biscay hoping to cross our patrols and, uh, and they would fly in little squadrons of four to eight, JU-88s. The U-boats had almost free-range Up until 1943. Now, that was prevented to a great extent by being able to use long-range Liberator aircraft which were operated from Northern Ireland and Iceland and uh, with extra tanks. They were the only aircraft that could fill the gap or, or reach the gap or have enough fuel to patrol the gap and that really meant that uh, it made a huge difference to the uh, safety of these convoys. That and the advent of, uh, of good radar meant that we could also protect the convoys using radar at night where when they surfaced they were in danger of being picked up by our radar Our technique was to always fly fairly low because a U-boat could crash dive in 30 seconds. Now, that meant that it left very little time for you to, A, identify the radar uh, return and get in the position to attack them. You never flew above, say, 1,500 feet because if you flew any higher to get better visibility, you wouldn't be able to get down in time before the U-boat submerged. You would attack it on radar at 800 meters, or your guess of 800 meters, you would then take over and do a manual uh, attack on the U-boat. We carried eight charges, and these Torpex dip charges were set at 25 feet. So the possibility of you uh, attacking a U-boat during your long career was pretty remote. I mean, considering the number of flying hours we put in compared with the number of U-boats we attacked, <laughs> there wasn't very many, relatively speaking you had eight torpedo step charges and you always dropped them all because the chances of you seeing another u boat were very remote and uh, that meant that your aiming could be out by some hundreds of yards and still you'd uh, you'd uh, damage the the u boat you preferably at an angle you you would uh, drop them across the across the u boat now since it um since it's submerged in 30 seconds, many's the time you would have to attack on the swirl that was left as the corning tower went below the surface. And to cover that situation, we had a, a big stopwatch on the combing panel, and uh, there were marks around the um, stopwatch uh, in distances. so. As the um, U boat crash dived, you would hit the stopwatch and you would then drop your tool step steps charges at the distance on the stopwatch ahead of the swirl. So your assumption was that the U boat would uh, descend in a straight line, straight ahead. But of course, it, it invariably didn't. It would either. Turned to port or to starboard. Probably the most difficult part of a U uh, boat attack was done at night, and uh, we would never release our uh, torpedo depth charges unless we were at 50 feet. So, at night at 50 feet, pretty dangerous flying. Uh, we had a radio altimeter, and that's what we used to use. In our particular case in the squadron, um, at 800 yards the the, uh, gunner would drop flares from a tube at the back of the aircraft and uh, these flares would light up the sky to the extent where to to try and fly the aeroplane visually would be almost impossible. So you had to hand over the ma- the control of the aircraft to the first officer in the hope that he would maintain 50 feet while the captain uh, controlled the depth charge dropping and decided, you know, the distance from the U-boat where he dropped the depth charges. That concludes the second of uh, Andy's plane tales and we'll be finishing off his story next week.